Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Ronnie Quinn. This week... Very well could be true that the markets are right in sensing a less aggressive Fed, but we're just going to have to wait and see. I think it's just more hope these days. Mike Regan on markets, whipsawing again. And Clara Ferreira Marquez on the Brazilian election after polls underestimated President Jair Bolsonaro's popularity, sending the presidential race to a runoff. First, though, to the midterm elections here in the United States, November 8th. We heard from President Biden this week, preaching unity with Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. He thanked me for the immediate response we had. He told me how much he appreciated it, said he was extremely happy with what was going on. This is not about whether or anything having to do with our disagreements politically. This is about saving people's lives, homes, and businesses. But the message of unity may be short-lived, with midterms fewer than five weeks away. Markets and corporations will be looking to results to figure out what happens to a slate of short-term tax perks designed to sunset at the end of the year. Also, the prospect for legislation in the next two years, regulatory risk, and federal energy policy. I spoke with Bloomberg Opinion's Jonathan Bernstein to gauge the state of the slate. So, Jonathan, it's important to preface everything by saying that we're still five weeks away from the midterms and so much can change in so many arenas from individual candidates to what issues even Americans consider paramount. But for now, at least, it does look like the Senate is favoured to stay Democrat. Do you agree? Um, You know, both the House and the Senate have become so up for grabs right now. The latest polling could change, but right now it looks like there's about a one-third chance that Republicans would have majorities on both sides of Congress, about a one-third chance that Democrats would have majorities on both sides, and a one-third chance of a split Congress with Republicans having the majority in the House, Democrats in the Senate. So, yeah, most of the forecasters right now would say Democrats have a slightly better chance of holding their Senate majority than not, but it's very up for grabs. What states does it depend on? Obviously, we're watching Georgia. It may come down to Georgia. But other states have a huge impact on where it actually ends up. Yeah, I mean, there's still several states that could go either way. Nevada, Georgia, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Arizona and Florida even, New Hampshire even. You know, there's just a a lot of states that are at least, if the polling isn't quite within the margin of error, it's awful close to that. So you don't think that New Hampshire and Arizona are lost to Republicans yet then? If you had me bet on even odds, I'd take the Democrats in New Hampshire and and Arizona. I don't bet on elections. But if you gave me, you know, 10 to 1 odds, I'd have to think seriously about the possibility. If the environment shifts to Republicans over the last month, it's certainly possible that Republicans could get back in the game in some of the states that right now Democrats have an advantage on. On the other hand, the environment could shift a little bit to the Democrats and something like Florida or Utah, where we have an independent Republican running against the regular Republican, but the independent Republican would probably caucus with the Democrats if he was elected, I think. I'm not sure if he's actually said that or not. You know, those could become all of a sudden in play if things move a little bit to the Democrats. And we just don't know if that's going to happen or not. 
So it's all to play for still. It does seem like Republican money is going to Ohio and Florida. Should we read anything into that? You know, I'm sort of an outlier on opinions about money right now. My feeling is there is so much money out there. It is so easy to raise. There are so few restrictions that any candidate who has a reasonable chance is going to be funded enough that diminishing returns start sitting in. So I don't think that any candidate who would have a chance otherwise is going to be starved for funds. Even in states like I believe Arizona is one where the party seem to be deserting the candidate. If a good poll shows up, he'll have the money to spend. If it does come down to Georgia, even if it doesn't come down to Georgia, does Herschel Walker do it, even with these new allegations about paying for a girlfriend's abortion, even though he's staunchly anti-abortion publicly? You know, I think what we should think about stuff like that is that it probably matters on the margins. After all, hardcore Republican voters... It's too late to drop him as a candidate. Mm. So he's going to be on the ballot. Hardcore Republican Party actors are stuck with him. You know, it would take something extraordinary for them to say, oh, forget it. We're going to give away one of the major swing states and give them. It's not going to happen. Could it affect some voters? Sure. Even if it's 1%, 2% of voters in Georgia, well, if they stay home and they say, do I really want to go out to the polls and vote for this guy who has not just this latest scandal, but a whole series of yeah. things? Um, you know, not to mention that his qualifications for the job were very shaky, and his ability to perform on the job had been very shaky in any of the settings we've seen him in. So, you know, if it's a very close race, it costs him one or two percentage points, that could be enough. On the other hand, we've seen plenty of big campaign issues, including important ones, come up, matter for a while, and then they move on to something else. And most partisans are very good at making excuses for people on their own side. So... um you know, sometimes campaigns really do collapse, and we've seen in this cycle some candidates running well below where their party seems to be in that state. That could happen to Walker as well, but we'll see how it plays out over several days and over the remaining weeks and what, what else happens if he has other public fights with members of his family, for example. That can't be good. No. <laughs> Though he does love them at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, apparently so. So in terms of issues, we obviously saw abortion becoming a huge issue. It's questionable as to whether it will stay an issue for the next five weeks, what happens with the economy, what happens with inflation and so on. It will bring out more voters, though, that's for sure. Are you looking for turnout to increase this time around? The indications so far seem to be that it'll be a high turnout election. Um, we, we are in a relatively high turnout cycle. In the most recent elections, 2020, was very high turnout election. And for mid, you know, the midterms are never as high turnout, but it does look like all the indications are that this will be uh, a high turnout election. And, and as you know, as you implied, yes, whether first of all, an issue can get people to turn out who might uh, not otherwise, but issues can be very policy questions can be very important, even if they don't affect vote choice, because a whole lot of Democrats, for example, are running on the abortion issue. They may feel that that was why they won if they win. And they will then act on it if they have the votes to do so when they're elected. Same thing, you know, for Republicans who are running on other issues. Those issues, even if they don't actually move votes, will be what Republicans perceive to have elected them. So, Jonathan, it's hard to postulate, given that we don't know how the next government is going to look. But if it were to be a divided government, what would that mean for Joe Biden for the next two years? Uh, in terms of re-election, it probably doesn't mean anything. Mm. But in terms of getting things done, well... You know, if Republicans have a House majority in particular, Republicans don't have sort of a list of policies that they want 
that they will then compromise with Biden and with the Senate, since nobody's going to have 60 senators. So with the filibuster, that means that whoever has the majority, they're going to have to compromise with the Senate just to get anything to Biden. But if the Republicans have a majority, we're going to see investigations, a lot of ugly smear type investigations, not sort of serious policy type or even, you know, based on fact types of investigations. You know, we saw this before with Benghazi and a Republican House and Barack Obama. Mm. We will see it again if Republicans take control. There is a possibility that Republicans could bring the country to default over the debt ceiling if Democrats don't do something before the end of the year to make that impossible. There is, I'd say, a fairly good possibility that next September, October, we'll have a government shutdown if Republicans have the majority in the House. They don't have a set of things that they want to get done that they can compromise about. They're running on Joe Biden being unpopular, and that's what they're going to try to do is, is go after Biden. Just in that scenario, is Kevin McCarthy a shoe-in for Speaker? Some of the experts on the House that I've spoken to think, you know what, he probably is, but it also depends on what the majority is. Mm. You know, It takes 218 to have a majority in the House. The Speaker election is an election on the House floor. If Republicans from the Freedom Caucus or other even more outlier Republicans refuse to vote for McCarthy for Speaker, he needs to get 218. And if they only have 220 Republicans and three Republicans refuse to vote for him, they can't elect him. Is that what's going to happen? We have no idea. But it certainly is something that he's going to have to worry about. And then, of course, we're assuming a lot of things now, but assuming McCarthy were to be Speaker and assuming the Republicans do take the House, how would McConnell want government to look? Would McConnell want an obstreperous Congress? I think we can look at what happened during the last two years of Barack Obama's presidency. Uh, McConnell wasn't trying to bring the country into default. He has enough respect for, for example, the business interests that align with the Republican Party to not want to do that. But in terms of confirming nominations, confirming judicial nominations, that's not going to happen. Mm. We may have a half-empty cabinet, you know, as we get to a normal cycle of cabinet members leaving. Would McConnell bring up a Treasury secretary, a defense secretary up for a vote? Would he have the votes to do it if there are 52 or 53 Republicans? I don't know. We may have a lot of positions that go unfilled. So that kind of stuff he would certainly do. In terms of figuring out a way to get the debt ceiling done, we've seen McConnell being willing to work on that. But we've also seen a couple government shutdowns when he was the Republican leader. So, you know, he won't have the ability to come up with those 218 votes in the House to get a debt limit increase passed or to get a continuing resolution to keep government spending going the next time it runs out. That's on the House side. He can't really control that. Mm. There's so many things to ponder because, of course, as soon as the midterms are over, then we're looking at the potential for announcements by various people, (laughs) whether they're running for president or not. Obviously, we know Trump is very likely to run. Biden, we're not quite sure about, but I guess he'll run. But there could be a lot of other candidates, too, and there are different sort of strains of Republicanism emerging. What do you see in the hinterland? Well, let's start with the Democratic side. It is in Joe Biden's interest to have pretended to be running for re-election up to this point. And in fact, it's in his interest to continue to, whatever he's really thinking, up to the point where it would really harm Democrats for him to drop out. We don't know what he's really thinking, but that's what he's doing. It's consistent with the interests of the presidency and his presidency. Some point between Election Day and, say, Memorial Day, he's going to have to make a final decision. And, you know, if he intends to not run, 
he's going to have to stop pretending that he's running. If he intends to run, he's going to have to do something dramatic enough, possibly a formal declaration of candidacy, that everybody knows, oh, yes, he really is running. Mm. Assuming that his recent rebound in the polls holds up, he's over 40 percent, he probably does not have any serious possibility of losing the nomination, and nobody important is going to come after him. But then again, if he flips back under 40 percent, who knows? On the Republican side, they've been running for two years now. Whether it's governors, senators, a lot of candidates have been running. Trump himself never stopped running Mm. for president. That's all he does is run for president. He didn't do very much presidenting when he was elected. He declared for re-election the day he was sworn in and then didn't bother stopping the whole time. So Mm. he's running now. He may have to drop out at some point. The way that he can raise money under the law changes if he becomes a declared candidate. And that's probably one of the big questions for him as far as when he makes a formal declaration or if he eventually doesn't. Mm. Obviously, he's also got legal problems over him. He may have calculations about whether a formal candidacy would help or hurt his legal situation. And then we have a whole bunch of Republicans, yeah, that are running. And some of them will probably get to the point of formally declaring even if Trump runs. Most of them will drop out if they feel like Trump is a formidable foe. We haven't seen anything like this in 100 years or whatever it is, a former president trying to win back the nomination after being defeated. I would guess that there's a lot of Republican Party actors who feel that Trump is the worst thing possible for the party in 2024. What are your thoughts on the DeSantis style and whether that could take over nationally? I think that we've seen him get a lot of publicity in Republican-aligned media. That's a very important factor in Republican nomination politics. I don't know that it's a style very different from Trump's. It looks like one of the things that we're going to have is several candidates who, in various different ways, stick with the Trump profile. Mm. Trump without this or Trump plus that, something like that, because Trump is still popular among a lot of voters and some party actors. So I don't see any particular disqualifications for either of those candidates, but I don't see it for several others. You know, We don't have somebody like uh, Rudy Giuliani from several cycles ago, where it was very obvious that whatever the polls said, he had some serious problems Mm. attracting Republican voters and the support of Republican Party actors because of his policy positions. For the most part, I don't see policy position problems with any of these people, any of the dozen or so Republicans who have made the trip out to Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, indicating that they are running right now, or they're doing what one political scientist says, they're running for 2024. Whether they'll be running in 2024 is another question. Some people think, well, DeSantis has the other lane locked up. It's very early for that kind of thing, and it wouldn't be very surprising at all if we have more than one candidate have a surge at some point and perhaps catch on long term and perhaps surge and then burn out, as we've seen lots of candidates do in previous cycles. Bloomberg Opinions, Jonathan Bernstein. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. To Brazil now on the presidential election runoff at the end of the month, which will pit former President Lula against President Bolsonaro. This after a closer first round than predicted by pollsters. I spoke with Clara Ferreira Marquez. 
So, Clara, in a way, this was a huge loss for Lula, given that the polls were suggesting he might win in the first round, right? It's important, I think, to put things in perspective a little bit. I mean, Brazilian elections are very rarely solved in the first round. It's only really happened twice since the advent of democracy. And I think while polls had indicated in the week before that it was possible that Lula could carry the election in the first round, it was always a little bit of an outside chance. I think the surprise here was really the strength of Bolsonaro's support. Mm. I mean, polls had pushed him somewhere in the mid-30s and he came out at 43%. And I think really importantly, it's the strength of congressional support and the success which his allies had both in Congress and in gubernatorial races. Exactly. Financial markets love the results. The interpretation was that if Lula wins, it'll temper his more leftist tendencies. But in truth, we don't really know what either candidate would do or even be able to do in power, do we? I mean, we do have some indications because both these men have been president, right? Lula for two terms and Bolsonaro for one. So it's odd, really. On the one hand, there's a sense that Bolsonaro, if re-elected, would really push ahead with reform, harking back to 2018. The reality is, as president, he wasn't really able to do very much of that. Balgirds, his finance minister, came in on this big wave of hope. There was some reform of the pension system long overdue, but really it fell short of what could have been done. They haven't really tackled fiscal and other much-needed changes, and they've mismanaged the greatest shock, which was COVID. So it's a little odd. And on the Lula side, you know, as president, he was a pragmatist. He really did govern from the centre. I would say, you know, this probably will push him to do that even further. He'll have to move to the centre in order to gain the support of third-way candidates. But the fact is, he was already there. His vice president, Gerald Walkman, former governor of Sao Paulo, is really a centrist. So that's the message he's been sending for some time. If Lula wins, what is the danger that Bolsonaro doesn't accept the outcome? How tense could it become? Very, I think. And it's going to become tense over the next four weeks. We've already seen quite a lot of electoral violence. We've seen pollsters attacked because the way Bolsonaro has discredited the polls and people carrying out those polls. That will only accentuate. I think the real issue with Bolsonaro is that taking a leaf from the Donald Trump playbook, he's really been paving the way for some sort of adventurism come October 30th. So he's questioned the electoral mechanism, even though Brazil has a very well-established electronic voting system. You know, there's absolutely no evidence of fraud. He's eaten away at the balance of powers, attacking the Supreme Court. He's really cozied up to the military since 2018 in large part because he didn't really have a party power base. He took to the military as a way of basking in the respective glory of their reputation for competence, for example. He was an army captain. He wasn't a particularly good one. That doesn't really matter. He can still do that and has done it very effectively. So that connections with the military and with the security services generally, so to include the police in that, very worrying. Also, the support for gun ownership. So there's been a surge in gun ownership in Brazil, a wash in guns. And that, too, I think, is a pretty major concern as we approach this. It's not necessarily true that we would have an uprising. I mean, he has said things like, I'll leave power either to go to prison or because God removes me and I'm not going to prison. So basically, mm. <laughs> sort of comment. But I think the real risk here, it will depend on how wide the margin is between the two candidates. If Lula wins, how wide is that margin between them? The other thing to bear in mind is that this might not be an outright coup, as you would imagine, in a 1970s kind of way. But these modern coups work in different ways. And what we might well see is a lot of point-by-point instability. And that is extremely concerning. Can we draw any conclusion about how populism is developing differently in Latin American countries? Well, it's always different. And I think Latin America, we have a tendency to talk about it like it's one uniform place, obviously very, very different. These are different countries, different experiences with dictatorship. 
I think a couple of things to point out would be, one is to tear down this idea of the pink tide. You know, we have seen quite a lot of that with Boric in Chile, Petro in Colombia. There's a lot of talk of pink tide if Lula comes to power in Brazil. Now, the reality is these are all very different candidates. They're not on the right, but really what stands out for three of them is that they are anti-incumbency. People are Mm. unhappy with the way things are going, the way economies are going in particular. And I think also just to bear in mind that it's also a very different experience to when Lula was first in power, when there genuinely was a dictator. That's not really the case now. I've been operating from the assumption that Lula is going to win, but that's based on the polls and they were wrong. So could Jair Bolsonaro stay in power? Well, it would be unprecedented because since the advent of democracy, no one who came second or did not win the first round won the second round. But we're in pretty unprecedented territory here. I think it's important to realize how little Lula has said about his actual agenda for when he governs. So the longer he he has to wait for the next round, the more details he provides. And that's less effective than just being the anti-Bolsonaro candidate. I think it's also notable how lukewarm some of the support has been for Lula. It's astounding, really. You know, this is an election where democracy is at stake and it just hasn't really come across that way to a lot of people. For most people in Brazil, this is still an election that is about the economy. And despite, you know, the reality being a lot less rosy, people still credit Bolsonaro with quite a lot and he'll be giving out quite a bit of cash handovers just before the next round. So I think it's absolutely a possibility that is not to be discounted. Bloomberg Opinion's Clara Ferreira Marquez. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. By the way, do get in touch. Comments and opinions always welcome at Bonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at Bloomberg.net. Now to the markets and another whippy week to start October. Bloomberg Markets Senior Editor Mike Regan joins. All right, Mike. Well, this week we saw stocks rebound, but it was more like perhaps a short squeeze, maybe a little bit of bargain hunting. But now we're seeing some kind of consolidation, though, again, it could still be just a reaction to headlines such as the OPEC plus cuts. Where is Wall Street right now in the fourth quarter? Well, I think you're right that this rebound in stocks we saw was a little bit of short squeeze. And also the drop had been so severe that valuations uh, started looking attractive. But I think another thing that's really driving it is what I think of as sort of wishful thinking um, that some of the central banks around the world are poised to be a little less aggressive with their interest rate increases. For example, the Reserve Bank of Australia only raised rates by a quarter of a percentage point. Many people were expecting much more. And prior to that, the Bank of England announced that it would start buying that country's bonds to sort of shore up the bond market there that was in turmoil. So the sense I think a lot of people have is that, you know, the Fed doesn't want to sort of break anything with their interest rate increases. If they tighten financial conditions enough that it causes problems in the financial system, that they will either pause or be less aggressive with rate hikes. And I use that word wishful thinking because I think that's possibly what it is right now. It very well could be true that the markets are right in sensing a less aggressive Fed. 
going forward, but we're just going to have to wait and see if that's the case. I, I think it's just more hope that that's the case these days. Yeah, because when you think about it, Australia is a very different economy. An interest rate increase in Australia affects a lot more people a lot faster. Housing is much more to do with variable rate mortgages than it is in the United States. And if you look at England, well, there's a whole lot of idiosyncratic problems in England. So I guess I agree with you that maybe Wall Street is being a little bit hopeful in thinking that the Fed's going to be more aggressive. If we think about what Mary Daly said this week, she pointed to real wage growth and pointed out that real wages are actually falling 9%. And let's just have a listen to what she actually said. Unlike it's a great time to be a worker, workers have all this power, I don't see a lot of power if your real wages are falling 9%. And so that is sort of an example of why inflation is a corrosive If we let it go, it's a corrosive disease. So yeah, Mary Daly is the San Francisco Fed, a labour economist. Her eyes are clearly on the labour market. But, I mean, she kind of speaks for many of the Fed members these days. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely correct interpretation of her remarks and a lot of the remarks, really, that we've heard from the Fed. Um, The one sort of limb that a lot of people grasped onto was Lael Brainerd of the Fed, a very influential member of the Fed said something to the effect of they are monitoring for stresses in the financial system and that they don't want to aggravate anything like that. But I agree that most of the commentary from the Fed has been, look, inflation is our biggest problem. We are going to solve that before we worry about anything else, basically. So that is kind of why I think it's a little bit of wishful thinking in the market that they are poised to be a little bit less aggressive. But to get back to the you know the start of the conversation, the stocks had fallen so much. You know, as of last week, we were setting new lows in the major benchmark indexes. The valuation started to look attractive again. Assuming you know you can put some faith into the earnings estimates for the rest of the year and next year, which, to be honest, not a lot of people are. They expect those earnings estimates to come down. Mm. But it does sort of present an opportunity for many investors to come in and say, okay. This might be the time to buy, even if it's just a short-term rebound, because we've seen that all year. Stocks would fall very aggressively, then we'd have a very sharp rebound, and then they'd fall even further, set new lows, and then another rebound. So I think that rhythm of big declines and then a fierce rebound have a lot of people trying to perhaps guess that this is another one of those occasions where we'll get a nice, strong rebound even if it doesn't mean the bear market's over for good, there are these tactical opportunities to catch a bear market rebound in the middle of a, a nasty sell-off like we've seen this year. Well, you mentioned companies and Helen of Troy, the maker of OXO kitchen tools and hot tools, curling irons, basically the maker of lots of things that people use around the house that are not extremely expensive. They said that consumers are delaying purchases and trading down. Are we seeing the beginning of what could be a more chilling earning season? I think we are, you know, and they are one of several companies, FedEx being another, Nike, CarMax. A lot of companies have sort of pre-announced or at least given some sort of outlook for the rest of the year and for perhaps early next year, suggesting that, yes, consumer demand is cooling off. And not only that, this strong dollar, this relentless rise in the dollar we've seen all year is very bad for companies that depend on overseas sales. You know, Mm. if you're selling products in Europe in euros and then converting it back to dollars, you're really, you know, getting hurt on that foreign exchange conversion back into dollars when it's this strong. So there are a lot of people racing 
for some disappointments in the earnings season, especially from the outlook perspective, the forecast for the rest of the year and next year. That's why I say, you know, the valuations look cheap. If you look at, say, a PE ratio of the S&P. We're on 15 plus change or something now, right? Yeah, yeah. It it looks attractive when looking out uh, at what is expected for next year's earnings or the the next 12 months earnings. But a lot of people are are thinking, well, we can't really put a lot of faith in those earnings estimates right now because of all these issues. And that company you pointed out being a prime example of that. And Ed Yardeni, in fact, actually pointed out in one of his notes that, you know, 15 looks cheap, but we could actually see the forward P going down into the single digits. Mike, how, if at all, are the convulsions in the UK markets bleeding over to the US? I, you know, they definitely caused a lot of volatility when Liz Truss announced her economic plans. And we saw that weakness in the pound and a rise in interest rates, a, a very dramatic and disturbing rise in interest rates in the UK. So it did cause some added risk aversion in the US markets and global markets, really. But they've kind of snapped back from that because of the actions by the Bank of England and even the UK government softening their plans about the top tax bracket. So that sort of reversal in sentiment towards England, I think, is also one of the components of this rebound we saw in equity markets in the U.S. this week. So it's certainly, you know, uh, all eyes are on England and the U.K. for the foreseeable future to see how all that shakes out, because it's a very crucial link in the global economy, financial center for most of Europe, as well as, you know, just a big, important economy that a lot of people pay close attention to. If it looks like Britain is going into a deep recession or that Britain won't be able to get its act together in the next few quarters, will that have an impact in the immediate term on U.S. stocks and rates? I think, you know, I think a lot of the economic damage that people are expecting in Europe this winter and into next year, a lot of it's already priced into the stock market. You know, it's impossible to sit here and say exactly how much is priced in if all that damage is accurately reflected in the stock market. So, uh, you know, I think it could be another source of pain for the U.S. stock market, but I don't think it'll be the type of thing to trigger, you know, a, a really severe furtherance of the bear market. I think we have priced in a lot of the expected damage to the UK economy mm. and the European economy as a whole. Yeah, including whatever energy crisis might come up. Mentioning rates, BMO, and this is a little circuitous, but BMO says markets are trading on the thesis that good news is bad. So a good jobs print reinforces the Fed's stance that the economy can take a prolonged period of tighter policy. But that will end up hurting risk assets because it's going to bolster terminal rate estimates. Again, a little circuitous, but it makes sense when you think about it. What should we think when we look at where rates are? I mean, we well backed off the 4% mark at this point. Right. Yeah. Well, I, d- I definitely agree with that notion that good news is bad news and, you know, the obvious converse of that, that bad news is good news. Um, the one interesting read we got on the U.S. job market was that JOLTS report, which is the number of job openings in the U.S. The number of openings has been off the charts high for a long time now. And that's sort of one of the things that has people concerned about inflation, because if there's way more job openings than people looking for jobs, then obviously companies have to pay more to attract workers. That exacerbates inflation. But those job openings did come down quite a bit by about a million in the latest report. So back down to about 10 million, still elevated, 
but it's moving in that right direction, which normally would be considered, you know, obviously bad news, fewer job openings in the U.S. But in this case, I do think it's a bad news is good news for the markets because it does alleviate at least a little bit of that concern about wage inflation feeding back into regular consumer price inflation. So it's far from mission accomplished on that front by any means, but it is moving in the right direction. Uh, and I agree that bad news is, is good news is definitely a theme for the equity markets these days. And also, the other thing I'd, I'd throw into the mix is Credit Suisse, uh, yes. the, the, big, the big investment bank. You know, there's a lot of focus on um, their financial health at the moment. And I think that's also, you know, rickshing back into sentiment that central banks perhaps may look at that type of situation with a major global investment bank struggling and think, okay, maybe we're it's time to get a little less aggressive with our monetary policy. Again, it's a wishful thinking. It very well could be, but I, I do think it's it's part of the story on what has influenced markets that we've seen in the last week. Bloomberg Market Senior Editor Mike Regan. That does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. Do get in touch. Love to hear all of your comments. I'm at Bonnie Quinn on Twitter or email me vquinn at bloomberg.net. And by the way, we're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify or your preferred platform. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.